Well, as you've heard already, we are starting a new sermon series this morning called Sent. Over the next six weeks or so, uh, we're going to think about what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit as the sent people of God in the world. And we're going to begin our series today by looking at a passage toward the end of the Gospel of John. So I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to John chapter 20. There are 21 chapters in John, so uh, it really is near the end. John chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 19 through 23. If you don't have a Bible with you and you would like to follow along, you are welcome to use uh, one of the Bibles in the Purex uh, in front of you. John 20, 19 through 23. Let me read the passage for us. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we believe that you are present with us, that you are our helper. And so that means during this time, as we look into your word, you are able to help us understand, and you are able to help us apply what is in this text to our lives. And so we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would make us deeply aware of your presence, that we would long for more of the fullness of you, Holy Spirit, and that we would desire to participate in the mission to which we've been called as sent people. We trust that you're able to begin doing that work in us this morning as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't get to the movie theater all that often, uh, but just the other week, I was able to go see a movie with my daughters, uh, the movie Shazam. Now, if you haven't seen it and you want to, don't worry, I'm not going to spoil it for you. And even if I did, I don't think it would be on the level of spoiling, let's say, the Avengers. Uh, I heard that Wayne made an uh, Avenger. Well, actually, I read his manuscript before the sermon. And I got really nervous when I got to that part in his sermon. was thinking, he better be careful here as he proceeds with this. I'm not going to spoil either. Um, I want to make just some general comments about superhero movies uh, just based on observations that I've seen, particularly having just recently seen this movie, Shazam. Now, Shazam is, is unique in that it is a superhero comedy. Um, it was the first uh, of that kind that I've ever seen. I don't really watch superhero movies in general, so uh, take that for what it's worth. But still, like many superhero films, it features a hero who is equipped with new powers and commissioned essentially to save the world. You've, that storyline probably is familiar to you if you've seen movies like this. But it's sometimes a process for the superhero, isn't it? There's a learning curve as the hero realizes uh, that he or she is, well, 
a superhero. And the superhero has to grow accustomed and used to these newly discovered powers and how to use them. And sometimes the hero even goes through a period of resistance, don't they? The burden of the mission seems just too weighty for them. They kind of wish that someone else had been chosen. Now, I can't help but to reflect on these dynamics since I recently saw this movie as I was reflecting on and studying John chapter 20 this week. We are not superheroes by any stretch. Let me just begin by saying that, all right? We are not superheroes by any stretch, but at the same time, Jesus does equip and empower his followers for mission in the world. Yet it's difficult for us. It's difficult for us oftentimes to embrace our identity as Jesus sent people in the world. And it's also difficult for us to accept the mission to which he's called us. I think the narrative from John chapter 20, particularly these verses, 19 through 23, are really helpful for us as we think about these things. And I want to consider in our time together two barriers, two barriers that get in the way of us embracing our identity as Jesus sent people and accepting the mission to which he's called us. And Both of these barriers are expressed in terms of our fears. We are afraid of ourselves, and we are afraid of the world. But there's good news in this passage that speaks to both of those fears, the fear of ourselves and the fear of the world. So let's explore these together. We are afraid of ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, here we're going to focus in especially on verses 19 and 20. John's gospel takes us more deeply into what transpired on that first Easter morning compared to the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, keep in mind the context here, the particular day. This is the day of the resurrection. It was on this morning earlier in the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And John frames these chapters into basically three sections. The first section, he supplements the story in the other Gospels about the personal reunion of Jesus with Mary. And then the third section is a a very emotional scene where Jesus appears to Thomas uh, personally and, and shows him his wounds and allows Thomas to touch his wounds, to know that it's really Jesus and that Jesus has really risen from the dead. But in between there, that second section... Jesus appears to a circle of the disciples who are secluded in Jerusalem. And this story, just these few verses, it really is about what it means to experience Jesus and to become one of his spirit-filled disciples in life after the resurrection of Jesus. So think of it this way. Chapter 20 provides us with historical evidence, a lot of it. That's, you know, John is writing to make it clear and known that Jesus really is the Messiah, that he really is the anointed one, that he's really the Christ. And so in this chapter in particular, he wants to present evidence to show and present that Jesus really did rise from the dead. But it goes beyond that because John wants to instruct us in what it means to live as disciples of Jesus in the world. And so again, going back to context... It's the evening of the resurrection. Now, you have to realize something here. These disciples are feeling a lot of emotion. 
a lot of confusion, a lot of doubt. The followers of Jesus remained in Jerusalem rather at this point than going back to Galilee. And we're told here that where they were staying, the doors uh, were locked shut. They're overwhelmed with fear. They likely think that the tragic fate of Jesus awaited them, that what happened to Jesus was going to happen to them. And not only that, but they're most likely filled and overwhelmed with doubt. They're afraid. We can relate to this. Sometimes as we read Scripture, uh, particularly as we read the Gospels, uh, we tend to dehumanize some of these characters that we encounter. But the fact of the matter is, is that they were real people with real struggles, with real doubts, in the same way that you and I struggle with doubts as well. Jesus appears to them unexpectedly. He comes and stands among them, the text tells us. We don't know how he appeared in the room. I don't know about you, but that's a piece of information I really want to know. Isn't it frustrating when you're reading something and you want background for a particular detail and you just don't get it? Well, that's one of those here in this narrative. We're not told how he got beyond the locked doors, but here he is. He's among them. And what does he say? Peace be with you. I wonder about this. I mean, did this, was this just something that Jesus said naturally? Because it was a common greeting in his day. So was this just something that he organically, naturally said? Or was this something that he carefully thought out? Did he choose his words carefully? We, we don't know for sure. Because like I said, it is and was the standard Hebrew greeting. But I do believe this, that given what the disciples were going through, and let me just step back for a moment and create a little bit more context for you. These disciples were friends of Jesus, all right? They, they looked to Jesus as more than just a teacher. They had spent three years, many of them, with him. They'd spent time with him. Their lives were immersed in the life of Jesus. Jesus dwelt among them. And so there are multiple things going on here. We talked about this on Easter Sunday. For these disciples, they're struggling with this reality that they had placed their hopes, their beliefs, their trust in Jesus as actually the Messiah. But in addition to that, there was a friendship. There was a relationship. And so now they're disturbed, struggling with the fact that as far as they are concerned, their friend is gone and things will no longer be the same. And so when Jesus speaks these words, peace be with you, and it's not the first, the, the last time that he's going to, to say this in the context of this chapter, as we will see, but nonetheless, he says, peace be with you. And I think given what was going on in the lives of the disciples at this point, these words represent more than simply a greeting. They are profoundly personal. Jesus, after all, promised his disciples peace. We could uh, look to many references in the Gospels, but I just, I'll choose one. John 16, verse 33, Jesus said to his disciples, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. So personal peace was important to Jesus. He uh, in effect, came, among many uh, other reasons, to give, uh, create the possibility of peace in the lives of his disciples. And we long for peace, don't we? 
Yes, uh, peace out in the world, but that's not what I'm talking about um, in this moment. I'm talking about personal peace. Uh, Over the course of a week, uh, even as I just look back on my week, there are so many moments where I lacked peace, where I felt anxiety, where I felt concern, where I felt all worked up. And this is a regular occurrence in my life. It's not a one-time thing. I long for peace. I long for wholeness. I long for stability. And this is what Jesus is speaking into when he makes this statement, peace be with you. An important point here is this, that before Jesus sends us out, he first comes to us. Before Jesus sends us out, he first comes to us. I I don't want to gloss over this too quickly. Because notice what Jesus does next. Peace be with you, he says. And then in verse 20, it says, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Jesus, by appearing to them in the midst of their fear, their personal fears, their fear of themselves in the sense of their own unbelief and doubt and confusion that they were feeling. They probably didn't really trust themselves in that, that moment. Jesus comes to them, and he not only speaks words, but what does he do? He presents to them what he had ultimately done for them on their behalf. He showed them his hands and his side. This is actually a beautiful picture of the Christian faith. Brothers and sisters, this is so beautiful. And we need to just sit here with what's going on in the text because we need to realize that we too are the disciples and Jesus appears to us and presents us with his hands and his side. When we are distressed, when we are doubting, when we are suffering, when we are sinning, when we are doing whatever Jesus doesn't forsake us. Jesus could have forsaken these disciples because background for this is that multiple times throughout Jesus' time with them, Jesus told the disciples that he would have to suffer and rise again, and they didn't get it. And we talked about this on Easter. They had no category for interpreting somebody who would come back to life. But the fact of the matter is is that Jesus instructed them in these things On the one hand, this should be no surprise to them. He told them that he would suffer and rise again. And so there's a possibility, the possibility existed that Jesus could have simply said to them, you have such weak little faith. I told you what was going to happen. Here you are doubting. I'm not coming back to you. Maybe I'll move on to new disciples or I'll do something different in figuring out how I'm going to work out my purposes in the world. But that is not what Jesus does. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is gracious. Jesus is present. Jesus comes to these struggling, distressed disciples. And what this highlights is that our standing with God is not based on our ability to have it all together. It's not based on our ability to perform. It's not based on our ability to be good enough. It is based on this, Jesus coming to us. It's based on the realization on our part 
that Jesus is compassionate, that he's gracious, that he's merciful, that Jesus alone is the one who saves us. In other words, brothers and sisters, Jesus is for us. As he appears to the disciples and presents them with his hands and his side, he is communicating to them, you do not have to be afraid. I am for you. I died for you. And I have risen for you. And I want to create new life in you out of the devastation of what has happened these past couple days. And I love the second part of verse 20. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus presents them with his wounds, his scars. In other words, Jesus presents them with the sacrifice that he made for their sin. And it says that they were glad when they saw him. Why is this? Because they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they needed saving. They needed rescue. And we too need saving and rescue. The the distress that we feel in our lives, the doubt, the unbelief, the sin, all of these things, it, it just runs so deep. You know, we're aware of some of it, but much of it we're not even aware of in our, in our lives. And yet Jesus presents himself to us as the one who made sacrifice for us. We long for a Savior. We long for a Rescuer. And this is how Jesus appears to us. We are afraid of ourselves, aren't we? I don't know if this, if this is connecting with you yet, even though we've talked about some of what's going on here in the lives of the disciples, but we really are afraid of ourselves. We're afraid of our doubts sometimes, right? We wonder, oh, can Jesus really accept me right now? Does he really love me in light of the doubts that I'm currently having in my life, the unbelief that I see over here, or the sin that I am trapped in? Can Jesus really be for me? And so we're afraid of ourselves. We're afraid of ourselves in relationship to Jesus, but we're also afraid of ourselves in relationship to other people. What will they think if, they, if those around us really know that we don't have it all together? But the good news in light of this, in the midst of this, is that Jesus comes to us with his wounds. This is powerful. This is profound. Jesus could have come in all kinds of ways to these disciples. After all, he was the risen Lord. He had literally just conquered death, sin, and evil. He could have uh, figured out some triumphant way to enter into that room and appear to them and cause them to all be in awe, but he comes personally. He comes presenting his wounds. Jesus comes for our own good. Before we we think about him sending us out into the world, Jesus comes to us. He comes for us. This is formational. And we we can't look beyond this. I'll just speak personally for, for myself. One of the reasons that I sometimes fail to really devote myself fully to the mission of Jesus is because what? I'm afraid of myself. I don't think that I'm good enough. I don't think that I'm competent enough. I don't think that I'm qualified enough. I think that my 
the doubts that I have disqualify me from really being a follower of Jesus on mission. But the good news, again, is that Jesus presents me, he presents you with his wounds. And this is not a one-time thing for these disciples. This was something that they were going to need to come back to time and time again. In those moments, especially as we move into the book of Acts, in those moments when their faith is tested, when they are persecuted, they had to come back to the personal Jesus who stood among them, showing them his hands and his sides. This is where formation happens. Life with Jesus. Life with the the, the one who sacrificed himself on our behalf. Getting to know him personally. Getting to uh, really dive deeply into this realization that he came for me. He came for you. And it's from that place that he then sends us out into mission. And so we're not only afraid of ourselves, but we're afraid of the world, aren't we? We're afraid of the world around us. Now we're going to look at, uh, we're going to focus in on verses 21 and and 22 uh, in particular. Maybe you've heard of the Great Commission before, that language. It's often used to describe... um, near the ending of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus appears to the disciples, and he commissions them to go into the world to make disciples, to proclaim the good news about him. Well, this is, in effect, John's great commission. It is the commission uh, in John. And again, remember the context here. The disciples are afraid. The end of verse 19, I want you to see that. It says that the doors were locked um, where they were for fear of the Jews. Now, specifically what this means is that these Jewish men, these Jewish disciples were fearful of the religious authorities. They were fearful that the religious authorities would do to them what they did to Jesus, which was kill him. And so, they're, I mean, imagine all that's going on inside of them at this point. They're dealing with their own sadness, their own distress, Um, their own doubts and insecurities, but also they have this very real tangible um, fear of the harm that those out there might do to them. And what does Jesus say in verse 21 yet again? Peace be with you. Remember, he showed them his hands and his side. And it appears as though this was a transitionary moment in the passage. When he, when he, when he shows them his hands and his sides, there's a transition that happens here. And there's a transition from the need for the disciples to personally embrace their need of what Jesus did for them on the cross, to receive that in a personal way, to realize that they needed redemption, they needed salvation, they needed what Jesus did for them, But also, this is actually the fuel, the context for our mission in the world. It's the bridge between personal peace and the peace beyond our own individual lives. What do I mean by that? Leslie Newbegin was uh, a theologian. Uh, He spent decades in India, but then returned to Europe, where actually he did some of his best thinking about mission and culture But uh, in a reflection called Mission in Christ's Way, he once wrote this. 
We have to remind ourselves again of the significance of the little word as. So now he's highlighting uh, where it says, Jesus says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So he says, we have to remind ourselves again of the significance of the little word as. It is the manner in which the Father sent the Son that determines the manner in which the church is sent by Jesus. Its mission is governed by the manner of his. Unless the full meaning of that word as should be missed, he shows them his hands and side. It was the scars of the passion in his risen body that assured the frightened disciples that it was really Jesus who stood among them. It will be those same scars, this is important here, in the corporate life of the church that will authenticate it as indeed the body of Christ, the bearer of his mission, the presence of his kingdom. It will not be enough for the church to place a cross on the top of its building or in the center of its altars or in the robes of its clergy. The marks of the cross will have to be recognizable also in the lives of its members if the church is to be the authentic presence of the kingdom. So Jesus appears to the disciples, shows them his hands and his sides, that they might personally receive what Jesus did for them, but also it represents the nature of the mission that he has commissioned them to. What does mission look like for us? It looks like laying our lives down for others. It looks like us presenting, so to speak, the side and wounds of the, the, hot, the hands and sides, uh, the hand and side of Christ to the world around us. It makes me think of a passage, um, it's in Colossians or Philippians, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I was just thinking of it, where Paul talks about filling up what is lacking in the affliction of Christ. And Paul is not being a heretic here. He's not being a heretic. He's not implying that there was something lacking in the suffering of Christ. Rather, what he's saying is that what is lacking to the world is a physical demonstration, a physical representation, if you will, of Christ's suffering to the world. How does the world come to know that Christ is the one who suffered on their behalf through our own suffering? This is the way that mission is authenticated in the world. This is the way that mission takes place through our own suffering. What this means is that we are called to follow in the same footsteps of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. Jesus was sent by the Father. He says that. As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is described as the sent one of God. And now that his work is nearly complete on earth, one of his final tasks is to commission his disciples, to make it clear to them that they are the ones who are to carry forward his work in the world. But the good news here is that John's commissioning includes the empowering of Jesus, includes the power empowering of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there is all kinds of debate that happens about what is going on here and what this means. And I'm going to actually avoid that debate for the purpose of this sermon um, because we don't have time to go into it. But the essence of the debate basically is along the lines of, is this a one-time thing here? 
Um, or is this something that reoccurs? And how do we interpret what happens in Pentecost in the book of Acts in light of this? Um, really worthwhile things to think about, but for the purpose of time and this sermon, I'm just going to say this, that it is a reminder for us that as followers of Jesus sent to carry his mission into the world, we are desperately in need of the Holy Spirit. This is a theme that I have been thinking about quite a bit in my own life because I've become so embarrassed, so distressed by my, the, the trust that I have in my own gifts and abilities in ministry how I don't really sufficiently trust the power of the Holy Spirit, that I don't look to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do ministry. And I can't help but to wonder if that then feeds into all of the fear that I have of myself, right? My um, inability to trust in my own competencies and qualifications and all of those things. It's because I'm trying, in, well, at least in practice, I'm trying to rely on those things. And it's not happening. It's not enough. And so it makes it worse. But Jesus wants to invite us into life. This is what this is about. Jesus wants to invite us into the fullness of the life of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father sent Jesus into the world, and now Jesus empowers his followers with the Holy Spirit so that we might flourish, so that we might experience abundant life, fullness of life for the sake of the world, for the sake of the, the world around us and the world's very life. So John 20, 22, receive the Holy Spirit, basically becomes the climax of the Gospel of John. The Spirit is given to the disciples in a really super personal way. Jesus is about to depart. He's not going to physically be present with them, but he's giving them his presence, his power. We are afraid of the world around us, aren't we, for so many different reasons. But the good news is that Jesus sends us out with his spirit, not with just simply our own resources, our own gifts and abilities, but with the power of the spirit. This is really encouraging to me, and I hope that it is to you as well. But there are so many reasons, as I said, to be afraid of the world around us, um, Things have changed over the last several decades in our country. Um, this, uh, after our congregational meeting after the service, uh, we have our next uh, training with community group leaders, and we're going to be discussing a book that we uh, read together called Everyday Church. And uh, the premise of that book, the starting point, is acknowledging that we um, minister in a culture that can be referred to as a post-Christian culture. And... Long story short, what that means is that in our uh, culture, in our context here in the U.S., and this, is inclu this includes the West as a whole, really, the church once enjoyed a place of privilege. It was at the center of culture's life. That is no longer the case. The church is increasingly being pushed out to the margins of the culture. And I would say that the church has not adjusted very well to this. And the reason for that is because we really started to enjoy our privilege. We started to really enjoy um, being in uh, more so with the culture around us. 
Well, that is changing, it has changed, and will continue to change. And the question for us is, are we really going to follow Jesus in the way that he calls us to? This is an opportunity. Sure, it's a challenge, but this is an opportunity to actually follow Jesus and to live on mission in the way that he has defined it for us. And what does that look like? He shows us his hands and his side. It's an opportunity for us to learn to serve and to witness to the reality of Jesus in the kingdom from the margins of society. I'm sure that by now you heard uh, what happened last uh, Sunday. Um, Another shooting took place in a synagogue in California, and maybe um, since last Sunday you've heard or read more about um, the young man who committed this heinous act. He um, was a member of uh, what we would refer to as an evangelical church. It was actually a Presbyterian church. And so it wasn't a church in our denomination, but much of the theology that is taught in that church would be theology that um, we would hold to. And there are different ways to interact with this, different ways to respond to this. We could be defensive and we could say, well, we don't have control over any one person's actions, which is absolutely and obviously true. But at the same time, I think this is a good example for us to learn how to, as followers of Jesus from the margins of society, to slow down and reflect and to ask good questions. Duke Kwan is a pastor in our denomination. He's the pastor of Grace Meridian Church in Washington, D.C. And in a Washington Post um, interview uh, article, he said this, obviously something went wrong. I think it's important for Christians, both those in the pews as well as those in the pulpit, to take a moment for some self-reflection to ask hard questions. He goes on to say, and I think this is so insightful, it's possible to teach people in the church about personal individual salvation in Jesus Christ and still fail to instruct them regarding the ethical implications of that faith. Going forward, a vision of the gospel that includes implications for the love of neighbor and those that are different from ourselves, to teach it as an essential feature of the gospel of grace and not just an add-on or an appendage to more important matters. What is he ultimately saying? He's saying that while faith in Jesus is enough, how do we bear witness to the fact that we actually are followers of Jesus? It's by the fruit that we bear in our lives. And the moral imperatives of the gospel must come along with the call to faith and repentance. Yes, we are are saved simply and only by faith in Jesus Christ, but as the scriptures teach us, that faith is followed by what? Fruit. By participating in the mission of Jesus, by loving God and neighbor as Jesus told us. And I think it's mission that really helps us here. And I want to end with this. When we're disconnected from participating in the mission of Jesus in the world, what happens? We get so caught up um, in our own fears, both our personal fears, but also the fears of the other, the fears of the world around us. And it inhibits our ability to love. It inhibits our ability to actually know Jesus in a real way, because why? Why? Jesus has told us how to grow in his kingdom. 
Jesus has told us how sanctification, that is the process by which we become more, more like him, how that gets accelerated, how that happens. It's through living on mission. Why? Because when we actually commit to living on mission, by uh, seeking to uh, bear witness to the reality of the kingdom in both our words and our actions, it brings us to the end of ourselves. Because you cannot do that very long with your own resources, your own strength and power. And this is what I always discover in my own life. When I disconnect from the call of Jesus to live on mission, I start to become more preoccupied with my own comfort, my own preferences, my own securities. But when I step out in faith by the grace of Jesus and begin to live on mission, I I, I very quickly am called to come out of that, and I don't like it. To be clear, I don't like it. And, and so I'm always kind of going back and forth. Uh, I, I don't want to lay down my life for others. I don't want to give up my comforts and my preferences. I don't want to sacrifice on behalf of others. But how do we come to really know Jesus fully? Jesus presents us with his hands and his side. He wants us to know that he did that for us. But he's also saying to us, as the Father sent me, And I bore witness to the reality of the kingdom in this way. This is how you too live as my followers in the world on mission. May the world see the scars and wounds of Jesus through our own scars and wounds as we are willing to sacrifice on behalf of the world around us. Let's pray. Jesus, on the one hand... We want so much for our lives to count. We want our lives to be caught up in a grand purpose. But on the other hand, we don't want this. We want to be comfortable. We want to be secure. We want to avoid suffering. Help us, Jesus. Help us. You are able to do this. You have given us your spirit. Help us to receive that spirit fully. Help us to walk in step with the Spirit. I pray that we would come regularly back to your hands and your side, what you did for us. You alone are the one who can save us and give us right standing before God. And I pray that you would send us from this place this morning with courage, with bravery, not in our own resources or what we can muster up, but through your power to be your people and to testify powerfully, to witness powerfully to your kingdom, to those around us through both the words that we speak and the actions that characterize our lives. We pray for your glory, Jesus. We want you to be glorified and for your kingdom to come. It's in your name we pray. Amen.